You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 499, Cooking on the Telly with Michelle Obama. Nobody wants to be in a band anymore. And the apparent poetry of song lyrics. That's all coming up after They Might Be Giants and Birdhouse in Your Soul. the most earworming song in the history of popular mm. music there is every chance you'll wake up at three in the morning singing not to put too fine a point on it mm-hmm. number six in the uk in 1990 and from the album flood they might be giants and birdhouse in your soul i am the only bee in your bonnet terence i like to think that is <laughs> that is such a oh it's such a wonderful song isn't it it's the way that it kind of it's sort of, it's, I feel it's like a slinky going down the stairs, really. It just kind of spirals <laughs> on and on and on. And I think it is lovely. I just love it. It's so, it's so, it's wordy, but not too wordy. It's smart, it's smart Alec, but not too smart Alec. It's got, as you say, this endless tune that just, that just, you know, gets its claws into you and never lets go. Um, I've been watching, like lots of people, the Top of the Pops repeats oh, through yeah. the various years recently, you know, where they're going through 88, mm. 89, 90. And the month, the, the weeks on end in which that was in the charts were probably the most enjoyable passage so far, I think, because there was an, always a possibility you might get that during the episode. And that was often through most of the, uh, shall we say, wasteland of the late 80s, early 90s. That often kept me going, I have to say. Well, hello, and thanks for joining us for the latest edition Mm. of the Parish Council. It's episode 499. I'm Terence Stackham, and here's our Chief Impact Officer, 
It's Juliet Harris. <laughs> I feel like I like a CNN. They should be announcing me as Chief Impact Officer with a screen with a fist hitting the screen on every word. Doof, doof, doof. Yes, that is me. Hello, hello, everyone. With Wolf Blitzer shouting out <laughs> your name. Um, yes, sixty-six percent of lumberjacks without beers in Dorton County want to vote for her this year. <laughs> When I when I think about the concept of cooking on television, it reminds me of mm. that old quote uh, related to writing about music. Yeah, um, it's like dancing about architecture, and I suppose cooking food appeals to three senses: it's taste, smell, and sight. And of course, two of those can't be accommodated by television. Yet that doesn't stop cookery shows popping up on just about mm. every channel on the television um, all around the world. Many of them these days in the UK seem to involve shouty men on Saturday or Sunday mornings mm. bellowing at guests who sit at a sort of countertop and the guest role is to be yes men and yes women to the shouty man and they are all these these men are all very sort of headache inducing but the last few weeks we've seen a couple of new cookery shows on TV mm. on Discovery Plus um, Mary McCartney mm. is hosting Mary McCartney Serves It Up which is vegetarian cooking with celebrity Except, I guess we're really talking um, A-listers here. There's Cameron Diaz, mm. Dave Grohl, Nicole Ritchie, no shouty men. Um, but this week, we've been looking, um, Jules, at another brand new cookery show featuring a former first lady, and it's not Melania Trump. No, I mean, obviously, a great pity, although as if as if those people know how to cook. But anyway, um, it's uh, it's called Waffles and Mochi, I think we're pronouncing it. Are we Waffles and Mochi? Mochi? Mochi, Mochi? sounds right, yeah. Yeah, Mo- let's call it Mochi. Mochi. It's spelled mochi, but it's uh, as in mocha rice, I presume. So let's call it call it mochi. And uh, this is a show that is conceived and produced by Michelle Obama, who appears as Mrs. O, apparently the proprietor of a sort of a, a grocery store style supermarket. Um, and she's not a manager. The manager is a, is a bee. I mean, uh, perhaps I need to stop here and explain. This is aimed at very small children. Um, I say aimed at very small children. That's the intended audience. But we will. I will go on to explain why the half an hour episode entitled Potatoes, which, bless you, I thought, oh, was Terence picked the critically acclaimed episode to watch? No, Terence really likes potatoes. So we watched Potatoes. And totally it true. Wa- it was the most enjoyable half an hour of my week, Terence, by by some distance, I think. I am so so it's perhaps perhaps best to describe this as and the thing the thing that made it so good was exactly as you say, it wasn't one of these shows where like you say, there's the shouty man and there's some, you know, there's, there's, you know, a woman kind of there as a yes woman. And on occasion, they might get someone who's in Hollyoaks to sit on a sofa as the guest <laughs> in their background. That's usually, that's the Channel 4 one, isn't it? On the, with is, that, yeah. that witless bloke that used to be on the football. Yeah. Yes, um, so, uh, and, and, and occasionally they... An occasion, Lovejoy, I think, and yeah, occasionally, um, who, who, hilariously, is also the name of the vicar in The Simpsons, Timothy Lovejoy. But anyway, they're never seen in the same room. But yes, and occasionally they might get one of Kasabian to play the keyboard after the break or something. I don't know. Anyway, fortunately, this was very, very far away from that in that because it is aimed at very small children, it's not a cookery program in the sense that they say, so you put a hundred grams of flouring and then you heat up a pan and then you do this. They, they don't go into that level of detail because kids, you know, can't, don't want that. Don't, don't, you know, kids don't have to cook, bless them. They just do it for fun rather than necessity. So it's about introducing small children to food. So there is some cooking and they do explain the ingredients that go in, but they're not, you know, they're not, they're not as clinical and, and they're not doing it to plug a book, which is my problem with a lot of mm. modern cookery programs. Mm. Even the ones I really like with chefs I really like, like Nigella and uh, Rachel Koo and people like that, um, Lorraine Pascal, uh, Nadia, who I love. Even then, they make they they publish a book and then they make the TV series about the book, which is a bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I to be fair, I watch the TV series and I buy the books, but but I like this idea that mm. I suspect there will be books as a spin-off of this. But it didn't feel like that was the only reason for having made the program. It felt like it was genuinely teaching children, introducing small children to food, telling you a little bit about the history of the potato. They went and saw a very cheery farmer called Manuel, um, who told them a little bit about. Well, just facts about potatoes, really. And the thing I loved about this program was I thought it was really joyful. I loved the central characters. I thought, well, there was a love. There was that lovely scene when they came 
they came back from Mars. Yeah, I know, but it made sense <laughs> in the program. They came back from Mars, and Michelle Obama appeared to be issuing some sort of human resources employment advice to the bee that ran the supermarket that was having difficulties <laughs> managing an employee. I mean, the thing I loved about this was... Uh, my friends, my friend who's got small children said to me recently that she gets frustrated with a lot of modern children's programs because it feels like they're all so knowing that they're aimed at parents as well as kids. And don't be wrong, this was very funny in places. I laughed a lot during this program because it was <laughs> such a delight and so entertaining. And they went and spoke to various people. There was a, an enjoyably bizarre interlude with Tam France from Queer Eye for the State, the straight guy who attempted to make over a potato and put it in various hats before realising that it was fine as it was. And that was the message of the program. It was a program with a message that, you know, you have to look at what's in the inside because they were worried that potatoes were not cool enough and then it turns out you can uh, you can grow them on Mars and make batteries out of them. I thought it was just the right balance between, you know, having enough adult humour in it but also just, just you know, being very joyful and very playful and I, I love the fact they went and saw a woman that taught them how to cook who didn't seem to be a glossy TV chef. She just seemed to be a woman that had a kid that really liked potatoes and I just, I, I really enjoyed this. It it really made me laugh. There, but I, I, the, the, the balance that they managed to strike between making it a bit knowing but making it fun was when they went and saw the scientist man that told them about Mars that was wearing that very jazzy jumper and uh, and at the end of it when he was when you know Waffles and Mocky the puppets thanked him very much for his advice and went off and he just turned to the camera and said how did they get into my house and I just thought it was such a good it was just such it was such a good hearted witty program that I just I just thought it was great and I will be watching the rest of this series on Netflix but I think I will have a lovely time because it was fantastic. And I did not know that you could grow potatoes on Mars. I love this show and I learned a lot from it too. I um, I, I enjoyed the theme song actually to Waffles. Yes, and, it was um, good. Yes, the, the, very good. The, the lyrics, listen to your vegetables and eat your parents yes, with Waffles was... and Moki. Um, I thought it was a surprise. Windy, isn't it? Yes, it's 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 quite it's yes, it's quite edgy. This isn't it in its own. That this is it's a little bit like Sesame Street in that they've dressed it up as being very cuddly, but they are sneaking in some quite radical stuff. I think in places. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, who who knew until we met Bo back the scientist with the jazzy jumper that you can use potatoes as a battery? I certainly didn't. Um, I think I I might have known that, but it's not something I've thought about for about twenty five years. So it was nice to hear that information again. It was beautifully made. It I, it had the Elan of the Simpsons crossed mm. with Sesame Street, which I think you mentioned. And um, learning from the potato whisperer in Peru. Who <laughs> yes, the, that um, was the, that was what he was called, wasn't he? The, fun, the potato, potato whisperer. whisperer. Yes, 5,000 varieties of potato we learned, and um, it, the lady in Peru seemed to cook most of them. It was probably, The only disappointment for me was that Michelle Obama, as you say, called Mrs. O throughout, she only appeared for the two or three minutes at the tail end of the briefly show. Briefly at the beginning and briefly at the end, absolutely. But then having said that, I quite liked that, even though I would have loved to have seen more of her. Also, I thought she, she and everyone in this programme did a really good job of talking sincerely to puppets, because that must be very difficult and I was very much convinced by 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 the sort of the the acting nature of it but maybe maybe it showed what a decent uh, person Michelle Obama is and, and how she's doing this as a, as a kind of a public health initiative for kids really it's it's around the sort of nutrition interest that she has and 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 it's, it was a vehicle for that rather than a vehicle for her as a star, I thought. If it was a vehicle for her as a star, then she would have been in it throughout. And I think there are a lot of other celebrity campaigners that would have been in it much more. But the fact that she wasn't in it very much showed to me that she it's not about her. It's about the message that she wants to present. And I admired that, actually, as much as I missed her, because I would have loved to have seen more of her. Yeah, she was excellent, and she's a natural presenter. Yeah. It, it, fell into, it reminded me – no, it didn't remind me, but I felt it – um, it's quirkiness, put it mm. into the same category as two of my other favourite cooking shows of all time. One is the Barefoot Contessa. Oh, in yes. Which in, have you ever seen that? In which Ina Garten stuffs yes, kind I of have like seen that. Yeah. dairy, butter, various fats and meat dishes into her uh, husband, Jeffrey. That's, that's mm. The other one was a short run series, um, Nana and Andy dish it oh, up. Oh yes, was I remember and... that. That was brilliant. I'm sorry yeah. that that died a death because it was terrific. great. Nana Cherry and Andy Oliver on BBC Two in about 2006 or seven or mm, so. That, that was really brilliant. Um, but they, they, you know, they, they, it was the quirkiness of uh, Waffles and Moki that made me think of those. I felt this show was aimed 
at showing children and plenty of adults too, no mm. doubt, about where potatoes actually come from. And I feel fairly mm. certain in this undereducated age in which we live that there are plenty of people that have never actually considered how their French mm. fries actually arrive in their little cardboard coffins um, in the fast food uh, stores. And so, you know, this may help with that cause. Um, as you say, I love potatoes and could easily eat them every day for yeah. the rest mm. of my life. Never get bored with them. Um and yes, there are 10 30-minute episodes of Waffles and Moki with Michelle Obama, Mrs. O, and they are all available now on Netflix. Indeed, and you can, well, if you pardon the pun, binge on them if you wish. <laughs> Thank you, thank you very much. Coming next, let's make some music. Let's form a band. No, let's not. <laughs> That's right after Drunge. Potato, 
potato, tomato, tomato, drenge, dronge. It turns out it's dronge. Um, I, I, funny enough, I, I meant to say in the previous thing, the thing that, that I really liked about the waffles and mochi was mm. that its quirkiness meant that it wasn't like anything I'd seen for some time, if ever really. It was a very unique programme, I thought. And funny enough, I picked this track to play this week. Uh, the track itself is by dronge, as we say. We've, we've managed to establish that it is tomato, tomato, drenge, dronge. And uh, and the song itself is called When I Look Into Your Eyes. I saw another programme. I have been enjoying uh, watching another programme on Netflix, which I've meant to watch when it was on a couple of years ago. And I just, this is the joy of the catch-up age. I, I, I forgot to watch it live. It went off iPlayer after a month or so. But now everything is up everywhere. I've been enjoying this on Netflix. A funny little programme called Giri Haji. Which oh, was I've heard a, of this. I've yes, never seen it. No. Which is a, a BBC backed, but I think there was other money involved, drama, which was described as being like nothing else. And, you know, often they say things about that and you go, yeah, but this is just the wire, isn't it, really? But um, but this genuinely was like nothing else I'd seen. Uh, it's a it's a crime thriller. Um, it's a not exactly a police procedural, not exactly a crime thriller. It is set between Japan and London. And the reason that I was familiar with this is that they did a little bit of the filming just around the corner from where I live in St. Leonard's. Oh, wow. And apparently enthusiastic eaters at Half Man, Half Burger, our favoured restaurant nearby. Um, hmm. And uh, as a result of which, there's a there's scenes shot on the seafront, um, which I was taking my daily walk along. So that felt very strange. And we were doing that during lockdown in a large concrete tunnel, which they always like to shoot things in because it's quite atmospheric. Hmm. But I really enjoyed this programme. And one of the things I'd liked about it so much is that it's, you know, it, it's 70 percent of it is subtitled Japanese. Which is a big risk for a for a big, yeah, big yeah. BBC crime drama. Yet all of the acting in it is brilliant. There's a strong English cast as, cast as well. There's um, I say English British cast because Kelly MacDonald is the main female lead, um, playing once again a policewoman. She seems to be doomed to play policewomen in everything now. But anyway, she plays policewoman in this, and Charlie Creed Miles plays a gangster, and it's really good. And it's so quirky and one thing that is so quirky is that its soundtrack is all over the place but the songs <laughs> on it are really really good they're really interesting they're songs that i often haven't heard before and i'm not saying i know everything about music but i've heard a lot of music mm. and there's stuff on it that i haven't come across that is brilliant and this drone track was on it i knew of drone but i didn't know this track and i thought it was great so if you want to watch things that are not like anything else waffles and moki and uh, giri haji is it violent, not uh, Waffles and Mogi? Um, I was going to say, I mean, it was a bit scary when they went to Mars and ran out of battery. But uh, but apart from that, um, no, it's, it's well, so there I is... I don't like really violent things, that's oh, well, why there's, I'm a, there's a large gun battle. Oh, no, the, that's okay. The, at the end of the third episode, the, well, it starts at the end of the first episode and begins. There is some violence involved, but there isn't that much violence on screen. So most of the fights, then someone gets slashed with a sword quite early on. But I think I don't think that's on screen. I think that they, that's done by way of a stylized cartoon. This, this is where it's so weird. One of the characters tries to explain to another what's happened, and it goes into this weird like manga graphics to describe what has happened. So it's a very stylish series. So if you can deal with you can deal with a three to four minute gun battle with some Albanians oh. at the beginning of the, the yeah, fourth. Yeah. I mean, I, I, not, how did anybody get seems to get hurt in that? They all seem to run away. So it's a little bit Westernish in its kind of violence. In the, and I suspect that might have been what they were referencing. But um, I'm only four episodes in, so I disclaim any liability from if it does get violent later on. But um, it's very... It's it's, it's a very go. quirky quirky series. I mean, it, it see how you get on with it. But yes, I, so I'm all about quirky things with quirky soundtracks this week. And that Giri, who knew that Giri Hadji and Waffles and Moki had so much in common? <laughs> now it's not that long ago that a sizable number of young people, if they didn't have the ambition mm. or skill to play football for their national team, they would have the alternative dream, which was to get together with a few mates and form a band. Mm. Um, you might put a notice in the classified ads of a paper to try and find like-minded people or even like Chris Difford, put a card in a newsagent's window and find Glenn Tilbrook. Wow. Um, yes. 
Here's three chords, now start a band. That was the cry in the in the punk era. But now it seems nobody wants to form a band anymore. Certainly it appears the days of piling into a 20-year-old van and playing gigs as a band, the length and breadth of the country have gone. So, Jules, uh, I've got a quote here. Adam Levine of Maroon 5 said in an interview this month, I feel like there aren't any bands anymore. I feel like they're a dying breed. So what's what's going on? Well, exactly. And can I can I read to you a few lyrics? And I know that we're talking, we might be talking about lyrics and how profound they are later on. Mm. Formed a band by Art Brute. The chorus, which is sung many times, goes: Formed a band. We formed a band. Look at us. We formed a band. And they do. They sing that a lot. But they do go on <laughs> and they say, and this is a. Uh, this is um they they sing about how great they are and they sing we're going to be the band that writes the song that makes Israel and Palestine get along <laughs> we're going to write a song as universal as happy birthday that makes sure everybody knows everything is going to be okay we're going to take that song we're going to play it eight weeks in a row on top of the pops wouldn't it be wouldn't it just be great if the world was still like that I love the romanticism of that I might have to pick I should have picked that for this week really if I was genuinely a producer I'd have picked that for this week mm. but I will I might pick it for next week because it is daft fun as much as art brute stuff is really but yes we seem to be in this very strange place at the moment where no one wants to be in a band anymore or rather perhaps more pertinently not so much the fact that people don't want to be in a band but people don't want to hear what you've got to say even if you are in a band the headline for this guardian article in which adam levine is is quoted extensively to be fair Maybe the problem is Maroon 5 and Adam Levine, perhaps, and the dead, but who knows? Anyway, that's that's ungallant. Why bands are disappearing, quote, young people aren't excited by them. And this seems to be seems to be the thing, this excellent Dorian Linsky piece, which his pieces are always very thoughtful in The Guardian. Um, uh, Adam Levine says, when Maroon 5 first came along in 2002, he says there were a lot of other bands around him. But um, <laughs> there, was some, there was some enjoyable reactions to him. Um, Dorian Linsky described them as aggrieved veterans garbage. Who tweeted, what are we, Adam Levine? Cats? Uh, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark, etc. Um, but when you drill down into the detail, um, when you look to see where we are in the UK top 100 singles, um, there are only nine groups in the UK top 100 singles. Good only Lord. one in the top 40. Two are the Killers and Fleetwood Mac with the songs that were 17 and 44 years old, respectively. And we, I think we talked previously, and it comes mm. up from time to time, about whether or not the charts are still a relevant thing. Mm. And downloading means that they tend to... Well, isn't it strange that we thought that downloading would make charts look towards the future, and actually it's made them look towards the past mm. because everybody can buy any well, music. Well, and streaming as well because you Absolutely. play the familiar. Yeah. So that's what I mean. Yeah, you know, mm. sort of electronic, you know, sort mm. of a downloading internet type stuff. Mm. The others are last UK pop group standing, which is described as little bits, and even so, they haven't got a full lineup anymore, have they? Yeah. Um, two four man bands, uh, Kings of Leon, who again have been around for twenty years, more than that, I yeah. think, and and Glass Animals, who I think are pretty new. Two mm. dance groups, so you could debate whether or not they are traditional bands, Rudimental and Clean Bandit, um, and two rap units. Again, not sure if you could describe those as traditional bands. D Block Europe. This is quite astonishing. It is. D Block Europe and wow, if we formed a band, Terence, we would surely call ourselves the Bad Boy Chiller Crew. Um <laughs> there are various duos and trios, um, but they're mostly made up of sort of solo artists. In Spotify's top fifty most played songs globally, there are only three groups, which are BTS, the uh, the enormous Korean boy band, um the neighborhood, of whom I'm not familiar, but that unlike many older people, I will not be blaming the world. I'm blaming myself for being ignorant. And the Internet Money Rap Collective, only six of the 42 artists on the latest Radio 1 playlist are banned. Uh, Wolf Alice, who've been around for a while, they won the Mercury a couple of years ago. Haim, who've been around for a while. Royal Blood, Architects, London Grammar and The Snuts. And that is it. Um, only half of, of all those that have emerged in the past decade, only half a dozen of those have headlined either Coachella, Running and Leeds, Latitude, Download, Wireless, or the two main stages at Glastonbury. Um, that's 1975, Alt-J, Rudimental, Bastille, and Tame Impala. And Tame Impala are technically Kevin Watts' name solo projects. Yes, so, indeed. So they're not... They're not um, 
Only one band who are the Lathams appeared on the BBC's Sound Of list. Um, bands haven't been the majority on that since 2013. Um, solo artists often. This has all happened without us really noticing, yes, hasn't it? It has, hasn't it? All of a sudden, someone's written about this, and you think, "Oh my god!" Hmm. And actually, interestingly, the album charts are a slightly different story at the moment, in that they are there are lots of bands in recent weeks who have got unexpectedly high entries in the charts. Mogwai, who have been a going concern since the mid 90s through a word-of-mouth campaign, much like Ben and Sebastian did when they unexpectedly won the best new band at the Brit Awards and made Pete Waterman so cross for, for Steps Not Winning, which is one of many things to recommend Ben and Sebastian, in my view. The uh, the sights, the footage that you see of Pete Waterman virtually getting ready to get up when they say, and the winner is, and then the fury on his face when it is Ben and Sebastian is... Mm. It, oh, I, you know, I, I enjoy that Shacht and Freud delicious moment. But anyway, I digress. Um, but yeah, Mogwai have scored a number one album within the last couple of weeks. So, so people just trying to buy their albums to get them to number one. So it seems like album charts are topped by bands thanks to loyal fan bases like that. But not since 19, uh, 2016 has one hung on for a second week. So, you yeah. know, in terms of what has happened... Bands seem to be on the back foot within alternative music itself. It's not that they're that the you know bit as we say the the top twenty is streaming driven now, so big bands tend to struggle to crack that. Um, the Jamie O'Born, who manages Dirty Hit label, which has got had success with uh, uh, nineteen seventy five Wolf Alice. Be Bad Doobie, who we played previously on the, on the podcast, mm. he says they 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 put it to him, are solo artists cheaper and easier to handle? Do people not want to manage bands because they don't want to manage the egos in them? They don't want them falling out and splitting up and, you know, having to pay for all that gear to go around the world when we still could go around the world. And uh, this bloke says... I'm desperate to find a really young band that I can help develop. But he says the problem is there aren't many amounts. It's much more likely now that a kid will make music in isolation because of the technology. When I first met 1975, they were all friends meeting in a room to make noise. So much is done in bedrooms these days, so you're more likely to be by yourself. Um, and this, mm. this chap, Ben Mortimer, who runs, who's co-president of Polydor, says that cost is an, a, a, a thing now. In that, If you're young and you want to become a musician... If you go down the band route, you've got to find people that you get on with that have your similar vision. You need to buy instruments, which can be quite dear, and equipment, and you need to go and play in venues. And, of course, the, all these problems are exacerbated by the age in which we're living in, of course. On the other hand, you know, it costs 80 quid to get Ableton, I think. And and you can shut your bedroom door and you can get creating straight away. Um, the guitarist from Wolf Alice says how expensive it is to start a band nowadays. You need a load of equipment. You need a lot of space. He says, I spent most of my student loan on rehearsal space. Mm. Traveling is expensive. Anything that can be done to make being in a band tenable for young artists is good because the fear is we'll lose that tradition. I think it would be a disaster if it's only open to middle class kids. And he's right. And there are fewer, maybe it's just that, that the technology means that band that being in a band is not as appealing now. I don't know, but it's a shame. I mean, and again, I think this talks to a lot of the topics that I think we've, we've, we've wrestled with during this lockdown period, particularly, which is the idea of people being separate. And, you know, are we going to come out of this and want to be together again? Or is this it? And I mean, I don't, I can't quite bring myself to believe that this is it in terms of people wanting to spend time together. But certainly being in a band is, well, it's more difficult than ever at the moment because being creative and actually just living life and going out and doing the sort of things that live music requires is impossible at the moment. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll come out of this and we'll be a swing the other way. I'm not sure. But certainly, like you say, I think that's a really good way of putting it, that this has kind of happened without any of us noticing. And this isn't just a corona thing. This has been building up over a, a decade at least, if not more. I think certainly cost is a major factor in terms of touring or live gigs in in any situation. And I, I've had I have this sort of theory that the catalyst for this has been the rise of stand up comedians appearing as headliners at stadium gigs like the O2 okay. and really only needing a microphone and a little mm, table with a bottle mm. of water on it. And this compared to the massive military style operation. Needed oh, yes. To stand on the road. And you only need to see the kind of houses people like Michael McIntyre live in, you right, know, Hampstead yes. or whatever, to grasp how many millions can be hoovered up by single performers going out solo on the road. But of course, as you mentioned, there's the undeniable element of technology coming into play, meaning that 
almost anyone can put music together in their spare room, in their bedroom, mm. of a technical quality now to compare with Abbey Road. And as you said, most of that to- technology is available for free or for, you know, 80 quid, I think you said, for for uh, Ableton. Another element to this, though, and it's a harsh reality that only people with uh, rare, there's only rare exceptions, I think, and it is a very harsh reality that mm. we don't often speak about in music, is the really the only really important people in a band are the singer and the person who writes the songs. And I'm very mm. sorry, bass players, drummers, keyboard players, but you are expendable. And, you know, no one goes to see, I don't know, the Arctic Monkeys or Radiohead to see the drummer. And so you can just no. Although I, I I will push back a little bit on that and say yes, you're exactly right. The creative really loads are the two most important people. Anybody that's ever played in a band knows that at the outset the drummer is probably the most important person because a there aren't many of them, so you, so it's difficult to find a good one. And b you usually end up rehearsing at their house and they usually have the van because they have the van. The most, that yeah, is yeah. And true. and you play in their garage. That's your rehearsal space. So <laughs> so actually yes, I take you your point but in the early days before before you know you have other places to play the drummer is quite important then gradually as the but maybe that's why drummers go so mad because the power balance swings and they don't like it very much you have to be super chill like charlie watts yeah so you know you can just do it all yourself with digital accompaniment or employ Mm. session people if you can afford it but you know having said all of that i do think it's a shame certainly in the live Mm. gig context because there is something so thrilling about yes. seeing five or six people on stage in kind of complete accord just clicking together yes. and that Perfectly sort of chemistry put. can't be replaced by one person in their spare room and who knows maybe that will mean that this will roll around again in the end because you know loads of stuff i know that, that we're perhaps not quite of the same mind on this but if you'd said 20 years ago that vi- vinyl was going to make a genuine comeback and be a genuine contender which it is now i know that we that we were perhaps a bit skeptical about how much it would fly at the beginning but i don't want to say i've been proved right but i didn't think it was just me i found it difficult to believe it was just me and it turns out it isn't just me. And who would have thought that, you know, in the age of CDs and then MP3s, that vinyl would make a comeback? And it did. So maybe, maybe the old ways worked in a way because people like having, phys- maybe in the same way as people like having physical product that they can hold, people also like having other people with them and people like watching other people together, as you put so well. So maybe, maybe that'll be, maybe that will be what will happen. Maybe that will swing back round. You have been proved right with vinyl. It was just a personal thing with me. I do miss the tactile <laughs> experience. I love yeah. the big cardboard covers. I love all the whole concept of it. But for me, it's just the admittedly minor faff of everything that goes with it when I can just sit at where I am now, click on um, something on the screen and but, hear but whatever I want all around the world. things those who wait, Terrence, and it's worth yeah. the investment. But anyway, yeah. yes, I see your point. But yes, well, maybe, like I say, maybe like all things that cycle back round, maybe, maybe it will come back round again. Mm. Coming up next, are Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan poets? How about Cardi B or Drake? <laughs> now you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's next, after Cocteau Twins.
it may be heresy to say it, but I much prefer the Cocteau Twins when Elizabeth Fraser is singing discernible lyrics. <laughs> I um, knew you were going to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as she does here. Uh, the album Heaven or Las Vegas reached number 99 in America, number seven over here in the UK. And from that album, Cocteau Twins and Cherry Coloured Funk. I mean, you say what she's singing is discernible. I mean, this is relatively speaking, I think. But yes, I see I see the point you were making. But no, I adore that song. Possibly my favourite Cocteau Twins song, I think. I think it's glorious. And that whole album is just very grand. And I was very fond of it anyway. But it was one of the first uh, Twitter album listening parties I did. One of Tim Burgess's ones. And so I I, I think of it fondly because I listened to it with my friend live. And it, and it made me sort of virtually. And it made me think of it. It was something that made me feel safe at a time which did not feel very safe at the start of that this whole nonsense as i'm now calling it so i i like you say i think it's got this glorious kind of they're very widescreen the, the cocteau twins for a band that i think gets lumped in with kind of 80s indie mm. they they have real ambition and real sort of space in their songs and and you know 4, 4ad had a knack of signing bands that were mm, that, that were sort of that were weird but were still big time weird if you see what i mean like the pixies you know the pixies were big big time but yet not the most normal sounding band ever so so maybe when we talked previously about there being a comeback for bands maybe maybe people rightly got bored of four blokes with guitars maybe people wanted something a bit more into though let's not forget that of course the beatles failed their decor audition because guitar groups were on the way out guys (laughs) um except of course they weren't but um but yeah maybe we'll see a, a return of bands that are a little bit more quirky and a little bit more interesting like the cocteau twins you're absolutely right. 4AD had the most brilliant A&R mm. um, uh, person or section, I don't know, but they really chose they, brilliantly. They knew, they knew what was up. I mean, you yeah. know, Lush started off on that label as well. But before they were a sort of Australian head Britpop band, they, you know, they, they had some really interesting bands on that label and still do. Still some of the most interesting bands I come across are on 4AD. Now, later this year, Paul McCartney is publishing a book of his lyrics. It's described mm. as, I quote, a self-portrait in 154 songs. So I, I quite my... like that. That's, uh, that's, that's, yeah. that's He's all right. And I know that no, we had disagreements right, over McCartney 3, but, but, you know, he has some good ideas, I think. Now, I've got um, our usual quiz-style question for you at this point. Mm. Uh, you probably know what's coming. Paul McCartney, the lyrics, due to be published in time for the Christmas market on 2nd of November 2001. Oh, no. How much for the standard edition? Just the ordinary edition that you're going to get on Amazon or in the stores. And is is this a hardback? It's a hardback. Okay. Um, I'm presuming, has it got, am I allowed to ask, has it got illustrations or photographs? It's got lots of photographs and okay. explanations um, by Paul about how he wrote the songs and why and, and so on. And this is the standard edition. It's standard not a box edition. set. It's not a uh, sign thing. Ordinary standard edition. 60 quid. £75 to you, madam. So heaven knows actually wow. what to expect if they publish a VIP version. I was going to say, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd start remortgaging your house mm-hmm. now if you're looking mm-hmm. for that for Christmas. Anyway, the lyrics will be accompanied, as I say. They, they make notes about why, how, where they were written. And um, now the editor of Paul's book is a bloke called Paul Muldoon. And he says, I quote, mm. McCartney is a major literary figure who draws upon and extends the long tradition of poetry in English, end of quote. Mm. So we know that people get rather fanatical about songs and the meaning within <laughs> them. And since the early 1960s, people at important universities have been studying the works of Bob Dylan and casting great meaning mm. upon their poetic musing. Now, we need to try and figure out if there's something to this pop music as poetry theory, Jules. Are these people pop laureates or is it just jingle jangle twaddle? Well, it's interesting you say that. I I think that pop lyricist default state is not poetry, but mm. pop lyrics can be poetry. So, I, but I think this is, I think that pop poetry is by and large the exception rather than the rule. Is my feeling. Um, we look at sort of exhibits of Paul McCartney. There is genuinely a case, I think, for Eleanor Rigby being one of the greatest poems ever written. The lyrics to Eleanor Rigby that tell a story that are so sparse. The the lines about wiping his hands as he as he walks away from the grave. No one was saved. I mean the 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 brutality 
of Eleanor Rigby. I think that Eleanor Rigby is a magnificent piece of work. And I genuinely think that is a poem. That tells me as much as a poem does. It is, it is written as eloquently as some poetry is. I, so I think there is a, there is a, you know, there is a, a case of that. But then having said that, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is not poetry, I don't think. It's a long it's, distance between the two, isn't there? I mean, it's isn't there? It's about there? three years in terms of of the calendar, Time. but it's yes. a, it's a it's a universe away. The Absolutely. two. Absolutely, and it, and it goes to show how how they developed. I think mm. as, as as songwriters. So I think that that pop music can can genuinely be profound. It, I mean, personally, I find that I find performance poetry to be one of the most awful things that you can force me to do. And my favourite, uh, those you know, those things that go around Twitter. Someone posted a picture of a, of a bar with some steps leading down to a basement, and there was a sign by the steps leading downwards that said "Poetry Downstairs," and they just put "Goes Upstairs," and that's exactly how I, as much as I love some of my friends that perform poets, never a good. That's how I feel about performance poetry yeah. because someone will get up in, you know, a woman will get up in a long skirt and you think oh god and and or you know or a man with a beard and then something made of hemp will get up and you just think oh no why did we not just go out for vegetarian curry to a vegetarian curry house instead of this cafe that's doing a poetry night um obviously lots of love to everyone that's trying to do that at the moment and can't but um yeah, so so I have some <laughs> issues with performance poetry anyway. I mean, there are some poetry I think is great, but I think that, funnily enough, you could say that when pop music tries to do poetry, it becomes very pretentious. But then so does poetry trying to do poetry. That is also very pretentious sometimes, in my view. So I'm not... I And I, I therefore, I have a bit of an issue with people thinking that poetry is somehow, quote-unquote, more worthy than pop lyrics. I think they can both be brilliant, and I think they can both be awful. And I, and I think that, you know, to think that you're not allowed to put pop pop music lyrics i know they do different things they connect emotionally in different ways but i hate this idea yes there is a lot of pop music which is throwaway there's a lot of poetry that hasn't stood the test of time there are a lot of there are a lot of people that that you know enjoy doing performance poetry although i've just trashed it sorry but um but there are lots of people that enjoy doing it that don't go on to become massive stars their poetry is enjoyed by people that hear it performed and then it, it doesn't, you know, it, 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 without sounding brutal, it dies with the person, doesn't it? There's a lot of stuff that doesn't, mm-hmm. that, that is also disposable, isn't it? I suppose in a way, it's an expression of art that doesn't stand the test of time in the same way that a lot of pop music doesn't stand the test of time. So, so I, I hate this snobbery, the idea that because something is published in a book of poetry, it is therefore more worthy than pop lyrics. Yes, there are some pop mu- mu- lyrics that are damn awful, but I wish, and there are some pop music the lyrics that are dressed up as poetry when they're not although regular listeners will know of my quote-unquote difficulties with Bob Dylan but even I have to admit that that some of his lyrics are genuinely poetic but they genuinely have the profundity that will stand the test of time so I, th- I think I I like to use that as a metric rather than something saying it is like poetry or it, or it isn't really so so there are there are some there are some things that look better written down than other things but then that is life generally isn't it that doesn't just so apply true. to pop music <laughs> and lyrics does it there are there are some ideas where you know there are some film plots where if you write them to, well look at waffles and mocky if you wrote that down and said well there's a there's a puppet made of waffles and he's got a friend who we're not entirely sure what that is <laughs> it's some sort of mocky bean we don't really know and they go and see the former first lady of the united states who runs a supermarket which is managed by a bee who she has to give hr advice to and they go to mars i mean that written down <laughs> i'm not entirely sure that seems like a great idea yet when we watched it we really enjoyed it so so maybe popular pop lyrics aren't meant to be written down but that doesn't stop them from being poetic or having a profound meaning on our lives i don't think you know that that some is bunk but then lots of everything is bunk isn't it i think there's a point that lyrics when separated from the music often lose all sense of meaning especially if we hear the words first as part of a song rather than as you say written down as a sort of standalone piece of prose or poetry um yeah there's i think there are maybe degrees because it's hard to think of um chirpy chirpy cheap cheap or, <laughs> or, or, or gangnam style yeah, as prize less, winning less ketchup song maybe not necessarily absolutely yes. but on the other hand the singer songwriter era for example let's think jackson brown Joni mitchell of mitchell, course yes i knew you were going to say that yes those lyrics on on say the Patrick. pretender or sorry patty smith i've got patty a smith, of patty yeah, smith good, stuff good and that point, works very pretty good. well yep 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I was thinking like the pretender Jackson Brown Court and Spark. Mm-hmm. Not only beautifully written, they they are they're actually um intensely moving. But mm. I suppose ultimately it's inevitably down to personal taste and who's yes, anyone true. to judge. And there probably are people in the world that think that uh Barbie girl come on, Barbie, let's go Barbie. <laughs> Have we just formed an Aqua Tribute band? Is this something that's, we're living it through strange times, aren't we? I, I think we could pull that off. If you just shave your head, there's no reason why we can't sell this. I could do that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, some people probably think that's the highest form of balladry and rhyme or whatever. And, and you know, who's to say it is? Not many people, I sense, but anyway, yes, it's plausible. The current, the current generation, though, and I, I think you, know, you, you made a good point when you mentioned this. Uh, your youth of today. Um, could argue with some validity that the words of Drake or uh, Childish Gambino have way more impact with, mm. with them and their peers than your Keats or your Byron or your Shelley. And of course, poetry can mean vast, it can have very different uh, resonances to anyone depending mm. on what moves you. And that's all that matters. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And also, interesting that you mentioned Childish Gambino. Do you know the story of how he got his name? No, I do not. Uh, so Childish no, Gambino. Real name, but, uh... No, Childish Gambino is the uh, rap alias of Donald Glover, who is an oh. actor, singer, performer. He's been in community, amongst other things. He's called Childish Gambino, and this is absolutely true. You can go on to the Wu-Tang Clan name generator on the internet <laughs> and type in your name, and it gives you a um, a, uh, a, 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 a Wu-Tang Clan-style name. I'm a drunken professional, apparently, which feels very apt most of the time. Uh, one of my parents is Wicked Bandit. I can't remember which, but anyway, Donald Glover's Wu-Tang Clan-generated name, this funny website that's been going since the late 90s, is Childish Gambino, so that is where he got his name from. But, um, sorry, that was that was rather off piece. But anyway, Donald yeah. Glover, aka Childish Gambino's amazing video and piece, This Is America. And perhaps that is an example of both. An example, firstly, of, of incredibly hard hitting and how pop music goes can go beyond the disposable to say, you know, really profound and, and moving and impactful things about our lives. But also the thing that made that the success that it was is the extremely arresting video. So yes, so maybe was, yeah. maybe there are, maybe there's two there's two sides to that coin. And that is going to have more impact. I'm not saying whether it's a good thing or a bad no, thing. But it's going to have more impact uh, on young people today than than Robert Browning. Well, a picture is worth a thousand words. Isn't it? And yeah. interesting. It's funny you say that. I, and I don't know about this. I know that Lord Byron was, you know, mad, mad bad and dangerous to know. But was <laughs> to... that with was that with young people or was that with slightly older people? Was poetry ever embraced by younger people or was it was it was it? For it older certainly people? was with my generation. But when I was um, okay. a sort yeah, of teenager at college, young girls in those fl- floaty flowery skirts oh, would yes, walk around course, yes. with, with volumes, um, yes. copies of uh, of Byron or Keats and. And, and 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 you know fall faint onto hmm. onto uh, daisy covered grass you know well, with the overwhelmed I, with, I, with I take, the I take it back I take it mm. back entirely yes my apologies but now how interesting thanks very much for listening to us this week and um, as always yes I, I echo my uh, my learned friend sentiments I'm wondering if you may be pitching your TV TV show to any TV television executives this weekend um, cooking in a cardigan. <laughs> do you know i i there must be someone that's done that already haven't they I'd, I'd be surprised if that wasn't currently sitting in development hell um alan partridge may be cooking in a cardigan with alan partridge who knows now i'm I'm not unfortunately pitching uh, a cooking show um it, there aren't that much that you know i don't think there's that much call for it really terence to be honest i um i i, I feel that i there isn't that i don't have the reach unless of course we can get me on a spaceship and blast me into mars <laughs> in which case i think that might be a hit there was a brief moment in that when they said let's go to mars and I thought, well, they won't go to Mars because this is a kids program. They won't have the budget. And then all of a sudden I remember that it's a kids program. So they can go to <laughs> Mars in a rocket because it is a kids program. So that was that was the joy of it. I think the fact that you took it seriously and all of a sudden remembered that it was a kids program. So they could do whatever they wanted. So, yes, they could go to Mars and wait for a potato to not grow and then use it as a battery to get home. But um, in, in, in lieu of doing, hmm. a TV, uh, doing a TV program, yeah. I was doing a radio program. Oh, instead. Okay. 
I will not be cooking on the radio. I'll be I'll be cooking with tunes. I'd make something out of that. I don't know. Anyway, yes, we will. We won't be playing Green Onions or anything like that. However, we will be doing smooth sailing. So yacht rock, easy listening is classic MOR and all all that sort of stuff. You know, that's middle of the road but not rubbish or boring. And and we'll be doing that for a couple of hours from seven to nine p.m. on my Mixer channel, which is mixer.com forward slash Juliet hyphen Harris, or just search my name on Mixler at myxlr.com and come and have a chat with some people in the chat room or just listen along with really. it. It's just a restful way to spend Sunday evenings. It certainly is. And also, by the way, here we go with possibly your best reggae cover selection so far, I would suggest. Oh, how interesting, because I've very much enjoyed some of them. So that is that is nice of you to pitch that as a... Um, as a thing, I'm I'm grateful for your for your uh, your your contribution on that. Yes, but yes, thank you. Your name is Terence Dackerman. You endorse this message. <laughs> um, I, 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 so this is not this is not a huge wander away from um from the original source material. We've played some in recent weeks that have been quite radical interpretations. This isn't so much, but it, it kind of slightly skews this tune, and I, I'm enjoying its slight reggae tilt that it's put on it um the original of course a brilliant tune by Sade. um her calling card one would say um this is general Soundboy. i think it's pronounced that we're spelling that sound and then b-w-o-y that's how he chooses to spell it i didn't spell it that way and yvette spelt or ivette spelt i-v-e-t-t-e marais and uh, this is them doing smooth operator
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. Mm-hmm.